So this is, uh, all of the Upper Rim Discourse has most of the teaching on uh, hold the Holy Spirit uh, more than any other section in Scripture. And Jesus has already uh, brought up the Spirit, talked about the Spirit, but this verse 26 is, um, I would say, the most famous of these uh, teachings for reasons I'll get to, into in a moment. Uh, the most explicit teaching on the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And so really what we're going to do today is we are going to uh, focus in on the Holy Spirit, um, both who he is and what he does. We are going to focus in in one sermon on the Holy Spirit. And some of you who maybe come from a different tradition than us might be saying, well, it's about time, Presbyterians, that y'all start talking about the Holy Spirit. And I get it. Um, I think that's a critique we deserve. There's an article, uh, many of you know Babylon B is a satirical uh, Christian website that comes up with uh, uh, Christian satire, and it, it's funny, but uh, let me read you just, just one to reemphasize my point uh, uh, about how much we need this. Um, this is a quick little article uh, that, that they published. Again, this is satire, okay? Uh, here's the title. Presbyterian Church asks congregants to please silence all movements of the Spirit before the service. <laughs> In order to promote a distraction-free, comfortable worship experience without any of the Spirit funny business, an elder at Grace Presbyterian Church took a moment before Sunday's service to politely ask congregants to please silence or turn off all movements of the Holy Spirit out of respect for your fellow church members. The elder went on to clarify that if you must respond to an urgent or personal call of the Holy Spirit upon your life, please be courteous to those around you by taking that call out in the foyer rather than rudely interrupting the service. Thank you for your cooperation. Now, the only reason you laugh, you wouldn't laugh if it wasn't true. And I think, um, I think this absolutely, and I'll get into this, um, and, and later on, I, I think this is absolutely a deficiency of the Reformed Presbyterian tradition. Um, maybe not in the way you might be thinking, and I'll get to that, but it is something that, um, you know, fair or unfair, I think it's true. Our tradition is not known for our emphasis on the Holy Spirit or our openness to his work and power. And that's why I'm very excited to preach on him this morning. Nowhere is the person and work of the Spirit spoken of more explicitly than in the discourse and specifically in this verse. So let's look at it together. Again, I'm going to do it two ways. Who is he? What does he do? The first point, I'll just give you a heads up. The first point is more doctrinal. It's, a, it's a, 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 the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Who is he? And the second point will be more application. What does he do? And what are the implications of that in our lives? Who is he? I'm going to let verse 26 answer this question in three ways that kind of build on each other. Okay. So who is he? Verse, first, verse 26 says that he is a person, okay? He says, Jesus says, but when the helper comes. Now, grammatically, in the Greek, helper is a person, not a thing, not an impersonal force, like in Star Wars or something like that. A literal person like you are a person, it is very easy to conceptualize the personhood of the Father and the Son because those titles evoke the idea of a person, a Father and Son, especially in the case of the Son who became incarnate in the person 
Jesus. But to understand the essence of God, you need to know that personhood is not directly dependent upon a body. God is a spirit. This is the first answer to the catechism question, which is a direct quote from John himself. God is a spirit. When we say, we say that, what we mean is that he transcends time and space. He's not bound by time and space like physical matter is. But he is a person. He's a spirit, but he is a person. An eternal person who is himself the source of all personhood that exists. To be made in the image of God is to be a special creature endowed with personhood. At least as it's defined with God. We have the capacity to love, to, to worship, to make moral choices, to create, to invent, to, to do relationships These are all things that we don't share with other physical creatures who have physical bodies like us. We share share these with God. We are made in his image. And these attributes are what define personhood. Someone famously said that uh, it's it's attributed to C.S. Lewis, but C.S. Lewis didn't actually say it. Um, They don't know who said it. It's a good quote, but uh, they gave it to Lewis because it kind of sounds like Lewis, but he didn't say it. Uh, Here's the quote. You may have heard it before. You don't have a soul. You are a soul. You have a body. You are a person who has a body. Well, the Holy Spirit is a person who does not have a body, but is a person nonetheless. So, it is wrong, heretically wrong, although if you do this, it's okay. I understand. But try to, start, try to start correcting yourself. But it, it's a mistake that a lot of people make. Um, it is wrong to ever refer to the Holy Spirit as an it. He is not an it. That is, that is as insulting as it would be to call you an it. You're not an it. You're a person. So is he. This pulpit is an it. This building is an it. Even something as big and glorious as the universe is an it. But you are a person. And so is the Spirit. We see this as Jesus says here, says, He will bear witness about me. He will, not it will, He will. Nowhere in the Bible is the Holy Spirit referred to as an it. He is always He. So He's a person, but we see more here. Second, He's also, yes, a force. Jesus says, when the, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father... And then he defines this helper this way, the spirit of truth. Now, spirit is by far the most consistent translation. Um, In older English, it'd be ghost, um, like King James, and we say ghost in our creeds. Um, but, But spirit and ghost may not be the most helpful way to understand this in our modern uh, vocabulary because spirit to us seems like kind of this ethereal, like, ghost cloud thing maybe that goes undetected and unfelt but the word here is pneuma uh, which which literally is translated as breath or even wind at times and and wind most certainly can be perceived and felt sometimes violently so so imagine the wind with a personality The most powerful force in all existence has the capacity to love, 
to do relationships, to freely choose when and where to sovereignly act and move, to make choices and decisions. This is the nature of the Holy Spirit. He is a storm with a personality. But there's more. One more thing to be added here. He is personal. He's a person. He is a personal force. Thirdly, he is the personal force of the Trinity. Now, for the sake of time, and quite honestly, perhaps for your own boredom, I am not going to fully get into the controversy over verse 26. But if you are a church history person, you will know that John 15, 26 might be actually the most debated, dividing verse in the entire Bible. That's not an overstatement. Outside of the Protestant Reformation, the only other great schism the church has ever known is over the interpretation of that verse. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father. The debate that divided the West and the East, so the West would be uh, Roman Catholicism, and then, of course, the Protestant Church's Reformation that, re- that came out of the Reformation of, uh, of the Catholic Church. You've got that, and then you've got the Eastern Church. You, maybe you've ever wondered, what's the difference between, I mean, maybe it's easy for you to understand, what's the difference between Protestants and, like, Eastern Orthodox? What's the difference between Catholics and Eastern Orthodox? There are definitely some nuances and differences in practice and stuff like that, but theologically, it's right here. The debate is whether the Spirit proceeds only from the Father or from the Father and the Son. Believe it or not, that little distinction has enormous theological implications about God and about the Trinity. If you want to, you can go down the century-old rabbit hole of debate on that topic, but let me just tell you where I and the rest of the Western church, that would be Protestants and Catholics, stand. Um, And I think it's biblical. That's why I stand there. Although in this verse it explicitly states that the Spirit proceeds from the Father, um, and, but exegetes would say that, that that's not a shut and dry case, that, that, that you can make a case exegetically, he's talking both proceeding from the Father and the Son. But regardless, when you look at the whole of Scripture, it is right to believe that he proceeds from the Father and the Son, which is what we say in the Nicene Creed. That little and the son that we say in the creed divided the entire church. They wanted to put in proceeds from the father and the son. And that's what we confess today. Now, again, rather than explaining that fully, for our purposes, here's all I want to do is I want want to explain the implications of that. What it does is it allows us to say that the Holy Spirit is the full presence of the triune God. Not of the Father, but of the Father and the Son. Not only does it preserve the full, unbroken unity and intimacy of the Trinity, it allows us to say that if we have the Spirit, we have the full, unbroken unity and intimacy of the Trinity. Simply put, 
In the same way that the Son is the fullness of God in flesh, the Spirit is the fullness of God in action. He is not just an agent of the Father's will in this world. Whatever, whatever the Father ordains, the Spirit accomplishes. No, no, no. He is the full personality of the Trinity at work in this world. And so doctrinally speaking, that's who he is. He is a person. Don't call him an it. He is a force. He's not some ethereal spirit that doesn't have any power or influence over the world. No, no, no. He's a personal force at work in this world. But not just a personal force at work in the world. He is the personal force of the triune Godhead at work in this world. He is majestic and magnificent and glorious. But what does he do? That's the doctrine. That's who he is. Most of our time here, I want us to, um, to understand what he does and see ourselves in it. What does he do? Jesus says, but when the helper comes. The word helper here isn't saying what you might think it's saying. The word is paraclete. If you're wondering, like, what in the world is he talking about in his sermon title? Uh, paraclete is the theological word uh, that's used often for the Holy Spirit. So today we are pondering the paraclete. That's what it means. Probably should have cleared that up before. But uh, the word is paraclete, which in the, that, that's, it literally means advocate, okay? Helper is, is good, that, that's fine, but really it means advocate. And it was a courtroom term. They didn't have defense attorneys like we do in our day. And so instead, what would happen is that witnesses will be brought to the judge to testify on behalf of the accused. Uh, not just to provide testimony that would prove the innocence of the accused, but more often than that, if there was no eyewitnesses to the account, what, what would happen is that they would bring character witnesses. So if I was accused of something and there were no witnesses to the crime and they were trying to decide what happened, well, I would bring character witnesses who would say, I know Robert. I've known him for a long time. He would never do this. Or maybe some of you say he would do this. But he would never do this is hopefully what you would say about me. And that's the way it worked in the courts back then. You bring character witnesses. You would bring paracletes to come and advocate on your behalf. So, as, so what Jesus says here is that there is an advocate who is coming. But here's where we tend to miss the meaning of the promise and the, meaning, and, and, and the action and purpose of the Holy Spirit. He is not an advocate primarily on your behalf, but on Christ's behalf. Christ is your advocate and the Spirit. Well, I, I won't go down that road, but he is an advocate on Christ's behalf primarily. This, listen, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, listen, he will bear witness about me. Jesus says the Spirit is my advocate, my character witness, my defender, my vindicator, the one who testifies about me. Now, this is so huge in understanding the work of the Holy Spirit, which in our day is so misunderstood. What does the Spirit primarily do? He testifies about Jesus. He bears witness about Jesus. That's what he's been doing for all eternity and throughout all redemptive history. He bore witness about Jesus and the prophets of the Old Testament. 
The Spirit of the Lord was upon those prophets to preach and to proclaim God's Word, which was unveiling the redemption plan and, and revealing the coming Messiah. In the birth, in, 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 in the virgin birth, He is the source of Jesus' conception. The Holy Spirit came upon Mary the Virgin, Luke 1. In Jesus' baptism, which was the beginning of His ministry, He anoints Jesus, falls upon Jesus at His baptism. He sustains Jesus during His time in the desert facing temptation. He, he, the, when Jesus stands up to begin His prophetic ministry, He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. When Jesus performs these mighty works, it says that it was performed in the power of the Spirit. Even the cross, even the, re, even the, even the, 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 the death of Jesus, Hebrews describes the cross as Christ, through the eternal Spirit, offered Himself unblemished to God. The resurrection, of course, is spoken of multiple times as being the powerful work of the Spirit. First Peter, He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. So you can say this, technically, it is the birth, baptism, ministry, death, resurrection of Jesus. But behind it all is the ministry of the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, from, from the beginning of redemption to the end, bearing witness and making Jesus known. And that includes today, still today. Regeneration is described as the work of the Spirit in John 3. The wind, meaning he testifies Christ to our hearts and we are born again because of the Spirit's work in us. Sanctification is spoken of as the work of the Spirit, meaning he makes us more like Christ. Glorification is the work of the Spirit, meaning he will raise us from the dead and transform us to be like Christ. What does the Spirit do? He makes Jesus famous. It's what he's always done and always will do. To quote Jesus, he testifies about me. He testifies to the truth of Christ in this world, and he is unstoppable. Now, before I get to the main application of text, I do want to offer an aside application. Like I said, I joked about us at the beginning, and I think we deserved the critique. Uh, let me defend us a little bit here. Again, a common critique we face in, in our tradition is our supposed neglect of the Holy Spirit. And in some ways, as I've already said, that is very much a fair criticism. He is not discussed enough in our circles. Um, in fact, teaching um, this sermon might be one of the first times you've ever heard uh, someone in our tradition do an in-depth teaching on the Spirit. I don't know. Um, he isn't represented well in our hymnody. He is not written about much in our books. By the book, by the way, uh, best book would be just Holy Spirit by Sinclair Ferguson. If you're looking for a really good uh, book on the Holy Spirit from our perspective, it'd be Sinclair Ferguson's Holy Spirit. But that's being said, there are not many books out of there from our tradition. So I, I think the critique is fair. But let me tell you why in some ways I don't think it's fair. When people question whether we are open to the work of the Spirit, when people claim that somehow we quench the Spirit, when people equate formality and order and things like this to being antithetical to the work of the Spirit, um, here is how I tend to respond. I own the critique in, in, in ways I think we do need to own it. But here, here's the question. Do you know how to know if the Spirit is at work in a church this question, is Jesus made much of? 
Is Jesus exalted? Is Jesus famous? Is Jesus adored? Is Jesus Christ glorified? If so, then the spirit of power is upon that place. If Jesus is famous, the spirit is at work. The spirit is famously known by theologians as the shy person of the Trinity. He wants Jesus to get all the attention. He wants Jesus to get all the glory. Now, we don't do things perfectly around here, and we are constantly growing and learning as a church. I'll be the first to tell you that, but I can tell you what has always been our passion, and by the Spirit's help will continue to be our passion, the glory of Jesus Christ. This place is in love with Jesus, and every sermon I preach is trying to make Jesus famous in our discipleship, in our community. Jesus is big here. He is exalted here. We don't do everything right, but man, this place loves Jesus. And I would say that means the Spirit is at work here. So that's my aside application to encourage us. If you want to know where the Spirit is at work, look for the exaltation of the glory of Jesus Christ. Now, but for the main application of the text and what I want to leave us with this morning, the Spirit is your helper, as he is referred here to here, but help for what? This is why we miss the meaning of the passage. Remember the context, okay? Jesus has just finished talking about the hatred and persecution from the world, right? I preached on that two weeks ago, and then we'll reemphasize that reality last week. You will be hated, you will be persecuted. And then he immediately says, but... The helper is coming. We would be tempted to interpret that as the Spirit will help us in our suffering. And that's true. He will comfort. He will sustain. He will, these things, give us peace that transcends all understanding. That's that's true. Um, To quote Romans 8, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, as Paul says. But that's not the main point here, though. That's not the main point of the passage. He is saying They will hate you, and they will hate your message because they hate me and they hate my message, but don't worry, the advocate will come and testify about me. Do you know what Jesus is saying there? They will hate you on account of me, but don't worry, they can't stop me. To which you might say, but that's not what I wanted the promise to be. I wanted you to say, they're going to hate you and persecute you, but don't worry, the Spirit's come and he'll take care of you. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying they're going to hate you, they're going to persecute you, but don't worry. The Spirit will come and he'll he'll testify. They will persecute you, but don't worry, they can't defeat me. They will try to stop your message about me, but don't worry, the message will go forth. This is what he's presupposing here. Our biggest concern in persecution from the world is not our well-being, but the success of the gospel, which is so counterintuitive to us. At least it is to me. We fear suffering and hatred and persecution and discomfort. We hate these things. Why? Because we're addicted to comfort and safety and prosperity and all these things. But all of that is secondary to Jesus. He assumes that we will fear persecution because it might stop the advancement of Jesus. And he is saying, oh, don't worry, the Spirit will take care of that. They can kill you, but they can't kill my spirit, is what he's saying here. They can hate you, they can persecute you, but they can't stop me. 
Look at the seamless transition there between 26 and 27. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness. So this is Christ's greatest concern. Not your comfort, not my well-being, but that we will join the Spirit in his advocating work on Christ's behalf. So listen, here is the truest application from all of the suffering and persecution talk that we've been talking about. What is more important to you? Your comfort or Christ's glory? This is where the rubber meets the road, friends. The Spirit's work in your life does not guarantee comfort. In fact, He is incredibly, He brings incredible discomfort. He is incredibly disruptive in our lives. The promise of the work of the Spirit is not prosperous circumstances. In fact, he'll turn your world upside down if he has to. It is not triumph over the world or anything like that. The Spirit's work guarantees one and only one thing, Jesus Christ magnified. He will glorify the Son. He will do everything within his omnipotent power to glorify Jesus. Remember, he is a personal force like the wind with a personality. And the personality of this sovereign, omnipotent force is obsessed with one thing, the glory of Jesus Christ. And so what this passage does is it presses in on our deepest desires this morning. After explaining the depth of who he is... And what he does, here is the challenge for us. Are you disappointed with who he is and what he does? Are you disappointed that he is not the prosperity spirit who always gives you better circumstances and makes your life better? That he is not this kind of nanny presence in your life to give you what you want and make things better? Are you disappointed that the Spirit actually is an advocate for Jesus Christ and Christ alone? The answer to that question comes down to this. What do you want? What do you want God's Spirit to do for you, in you, and through you? If it's to make my life better and more comfortable, which I will be the first to confess, I'll lead with this repentance here, Uh, this caused me to evaluate my prayer life, and I'm embarrassed to admit that If the Spirit were to answer my questions, my life would get a lot better. (laughs) I don't know how much more the glory of Christ would be exalted. So I'm with you. If, if, If what you want God's Spirit to do for you, in you, and through you is to make your life better and more comfortable, then I have bad news for you. The Spirit isn't necessarily going to give you what you want. He doesn't really care about that. If your deepest desire is the glory of Jesus Christ. If you say, Spirit, whatever it takes, make me like Jesus. Use me for Jesus. Let my life be a testimony to the truth and glory of Jesus. Well, then I have really, really good news for you. That is exactly what the Holy Spirit loves to do. And that is exactly what he always will do. If your heart is the glory of Christ, then your heart 
is the heart of the Holy Spirit. Let me pray that that would be true for us. Lord, we pray that you would make us more like the Spirit's personality, obsessed with Jesus in the glory of Jesus. Forgive us for quenching your Spirit. Forgive us for not asking you to do what you're passionate about, Spirit, but asking you to just make our life easier, more comfortable. Lord, we repent. We repent. And we come now and ask that you would do what you promised to do, Spirit, make much of Jesus and his gospel through this table. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.